war broke out and it was bombing, constant bombing. And everyone was going towards east. The roads were littered with trucks and bodies. And I was swept with this tide of people. And there was a Polish girl in my dormitory who was very good to me, who helped me out a lot. And I figured out, gee, she's only a couple of miles away from here. I'll stop there and I'll get something to wear to cover myself. I had a flimsy nightgown on. As soon as I came down to her gate, she said, get away from here, you dirty Jew. And this is the first time that it hit me, that I really understood what it's all about. My name is Celia Casso. It used to be Simmer. My maiden name, Simmer. And you were born in what city and what date? In 1923, October 23, in Poland. And the city, the place? It's a little city that you can't even pronounce, Szarkowszczyzna. It's very hard to spell. You're listening to Those Who Were There, Voices from the Holocaust, a podcast that draws on recorded interviews from Yale University's Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies. I'm Eleanor Risa. Celia Casau was born into an upper-middle-class family in a small city near Vilna, which at the time was a part of Poland. Her father was a successful businessman. Her mother ran the family's restaurant. When the Nazis attacked Celia's hometown in June 1941, Celia was 17 years old and living at a nearby boarding school. She had two brothers and four sisters. It's now February 25, 1980, and Celia Casau is seated against a dark backdrop in a television studio in New Haven, Connecticut. She's wearing a long-sleeved gray dress with a gray and red scarf at her open collar. Celia has a narrow face set off by silver-accented brown hair. Her heavy-lidded brown eyes are intensely focused on her interviewers, Laurel Vlock and Hillel Klein. In part one of this two-part episode, Celia explains that she managed to get home ahead of the invading Nazi troops, but she wasn't out of harm's way. When I came home, the Germans weren't there yet because they couldn't occupy every little city. But they set up some kind of a government with the local militia, and they gave them orders to loot and to break a pogrom to the fullest extent, just do as much damage as you can. And they started breaking windows, walls, floors, looking for valuables. They were destroying everything in sight. And of course, we ran for our lives to the woods. And at nightfall, when it became quiet, when we could hear no more looting, we came back to our supposedly what once were homes. There was nothing left. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Everything was broken. What they couldn't cart away, they broke. And this is when my sister started giving birth. She gave birth amidst all this rubble, and it was indescribable. And then they organized the ghetto. They had to bring in all the Jews from the surrounding little towns. And our 
ghetto became the main ghetto from this, for this region. And our house was very large. We had a restaurant in it. And people were pushed in like sardines. And they kept on bringing more and more and more people every single day. And there was no room anymore to put them in. The windows were boarded up. We were not allowed to look out the window, ever. We were not allowed to go out and get water. Every day there were different decrees. Jews uh, turn in your bicycles. Jews turn in your valuables. Jews turn in your winter coats. Uh, children are not allowed to go to school. Jews don't walk on sidewalks. We had no rights whatsoever. We could not walk where people walked. People, uh, they meant Gentiles. We were scum. And of course, whenever a German truck came or a car, they just ran us over, just like that. Just like that. No one ever had to account for it. And we were confined to this ghetto, and every day there was a different decree. Today, they want 25 Jews. They take them out and they shoot them, just for no reason at all. And every single day, they used to come and take people to work, us included. And the work was just incredible. You see, their cars could not drive in the snow and ice. So they used to get us out of bed and uh, give us jobs to chip away the ice. Of course, with no regard for our health, because we weren't dressed at all. So people got pneumonia and died off like flies. And my mother volunteered in the ghetto to bake bread for the ghetto, since our oven was equipped to handle this large amount of bakery. We had restaurants or large ovens. The reason she undertook to do it, she couldn't see the starving people in her house. She couldn't take it. She really added more water and more water every single day. She diluted it, that the bread finally wasn't a dough, it was like milk. And she put it in containers, but it wasn't enough. People had tuberculosis, people had pneumonia. Dozens of people used to die. My mother couldn't take it. Now, even in the ghetto, there was discrimination. There was a rich ghetto and a poor ghetto. Whoever had some kind of, I would call it prestige, I don't know, was housed in the ghetto where we were. Better housing, although we were packed like sardines, better working conditions, supposedly. Uh, I worked in the commandant tour. This I like to mention because I think I helped the ghetto a lot. Myself and a cousin who worked for the Germans. They needed someone to serve them three meals a day. And they were looking for someone clean and uh, what they called pretty and uh, well-mannered and so on. So from about several thousand girls, they picked me. I used to come in there three times a day, serve them their meals. Of course, my nails had to be polished. I had to be very clean, very neat. They gave me soap, they gave me all the uh, cosmetics to be nice and clean. My hair was shiny, I had to look well because they entertained a lot. And this gave me the opportunity to spy. And uh, I reported everything to the ghetto. I could read German very well. I could see and hear what was going on. And this is how we found out that the action will take place in the ghetto. We knew the date and the time. We knew that the Lithuanians are coming in in truckloads every single day, more and more. And we knew it spelled trouble. The only way they come is for extermination of the ghetto. And uh, when we saw them come in at night, we were on guard in our house, in the attic, 
who had guards watching the commandant tour, which was across from the ghetto. And when we saw them jumping off the trucks, we were all pushed towards the back of the ghetto and we all ran in the woods. And your family? My family, my father died in the ghetto. He didn't want to run. He remained in the ghetto. He was shot there the same day. I would be shot, I turned around and I saw a classmate of mine who was a policeman and his rifle jammed. He looked at me and I looked at him. And that's the only reason I'm alive, his rifle jammed, he couldn't shoot me. So I escaped. I found myself in the woods with my younger sister, the one that's alive now. And we were in the woods and we ran into a lot of people and one was asking the other one, do you know who is alive, do you know who escaped? It seems that my sister and her baby and my mother were in one part of the woods. And my other sister and her little child of four, and uh, yes, two of them, were in another part with my younger 15-year-old. And my 15-year-old ran out to get some food for this child, and she was killed together with the mother of my cousin who is here in New Haven. Their eyes were gouged out, and they were left on the road. And then a peasant told us that he buried them and he showed us the place. And my other sister with the little baby was nursing her at that time. At eight months, she couldn't nurse her anymore. So they had a few gold pieces with them, watches, rings, whatever. My mother and sister decided to send the baby to Globok. There was another remaining ghetto. So they put a name tag on the baby's neck in five languages. My father was very well known. And they sent the baby to Globok, which uh, the peasant took the money and the baby, and he brought the baby to the ghetto, and he threw her over the fence. But then, anyway, they were killed in the next ghetto. But he did bring the baby to the ghetto. When we were in the woods, coming away from the ghetto, we were all little groups of Jews in woods. We heard crying here, we heard crying there. And then I ran into a group of Jews, maybe 12, 15, and there was a cousin of mine with two children, a little girl of four or five and a little boy of maybe eight, 10, 11 months. And he had a voice, it was such a raspy voice, it was impossible. And in the woods, when a child cries, it really rings out and the Germans would really come very fast. So the group of Jews said to her, look, Taibel, you can't be in the woods with this child. Either get away or kill him. She became wild. She looked at me, you. She said, you're a big healthy girl and you're my cousin. You're the one who's going to do it. I said, what? Why did you choose me? I said, I'm only a child. I always used to say, I'm only a child. Please leave me alone. Anyway, she had to do it. There was no choice. She wanted, she has a little girl and herself to think of. I saw her put the child in the swamp with her foot on his neck. She drowned him. I saw it with my own eyes. There were a lot of incidents like this, that little babies were killed off because they were crying and they were endangering the life of other Jews. You couldn't live in the woods anymore because you were hunted down like animals. So a lot of people started going towards Klebok, including myself and my little sister. Klebok was very large, was close to 10,000 people there. They told me that a day before, the Germans told everyone to come to the Schlossplatz. And um, they told people from 16 to 25 to step aside, which they did. 
they were killed, 2,500 people from 16 to 25, including the children of my first cousin. So when I came into the ghetto, this woman went berserk. She started hitting me and pulling at me and clawing at me. She said, what right do you have to be alive and my children are all dead? And she started hitting me with such force. So she said, you should be dead too. My children are dead. Well, we were the same age. We went to school together. Then all of a sudden my mother comes out. I didn't know she was alive. And she said to me, what business did you have to come here? My mother to me. She said, I fed you and I clothed you for so many years and now you're a parasite, out you go. She knew I had a chance to go and hide because there was a peasant who wanted to hide us. My mother was really vicious. And then she broke down, she started crying. She said, look darling, I do love you, you know I do. The reason I want you to go is because at least one person should remain alive of the family. I said, no, mama, if you go with me, I'll go. If you don't go, I won't go. She said, look, you see your sister with the baby, you see the other sister with the child, how can I leave them? Your father is dead, your younger sister is dead, please go. So the farmer that offered me his home risked his life, he put on a yellow star, entered the ghetto, he came and he found me, he said, you're going out with me, I have papers for you. And I didn't look very much Jewish at that time. I was blonde. He said, you're going with me. Sure enough, we took off the stars, him and me, and the two of us set out on the main highway. And uh, we hear a horse-driven buggy behind us and uh, two men in it, and they say, hop in. Hop in. I said, that's the end. It was the... Uh, secretary of the governor with a friend. He said, why didn't you get a ride with us? And while I was on the highway in this wagon, heading towards the guy's farm, I see someone walking that looked very familiar to me. My, my brother walks in a very peculiar way. And I noticed he's walking and staring at me and I knew if he'll say one word to me, this farmer and his whole family will be tortured to death. So I went like this. To him, he shouldn't say anything. And this is the first time I knew that he's alive after the ghetto. I didn't know. And all of a sudden, I see him alive. He passed us by, and he went to the ghetto. Anyway, the farmer and I and the two Zonderfeers, whoever they were, they decided they're going to stop in a village. There was a dance going on. And I had to dance the whole night. I danced. I danced the whole night and sang. And you can imagine how I felt like singing and dancing. But I did it the whole night. And no one found me out. And in the morning we went and I landed in the farmer's place. Now, the life on the farm is, I can't begin to tell you because what, what it meant to be in hiding. The guy made a hole under the floor in the barn. The hole consisted of maybe as wide as I was, two feet. And as long as I was, you couldn't turn. If you crawled in on your stomach, you remained on your stomach. If you crawled in on your back, you remained on your back. Sometimes when it was quiet, he would pull me out by my legs and give me a chance to straighten out my bones and give me a little food. But it was harvest time and the barn was full of, work, of workers. So sometimes I remained for a week and 10 days in one position under the floor in this hall. There was no other way.
and the rats were so big. The rats are indescribably big, and they used to chew on me. And you couldn't, we learned not to scream. You just remained in this hole. The Germans at that time deprived people of salt, and salt was such a commodity that they would risk their life for a bag of salt. And I used to hear the peasants, how many did you get today? They used to pass by the barn, that was the main road. They used to pass by the barn with Jews, they used to catch five, ten, and for each Jew they used to get a sack of salt. When it was quiet, when there weren't any workers in the barn, I used to crawl out, and uh, the barn was built of timber, very large timber, with uh, little grass in between. So I poked out the grass, and I could very, very, by narrowing one eye, I could really look through it and could see them passing by with Jews in the wagon tied hand and foot. So the feelings, there were no feelings. You were completely numb, you didn't cry, you didn't communicate with anyone. The only thing that you thought about is, I like to survive, I like to see what will be the end of it. Let us go back to the relation between you and the peasant. What did you find about the peasants that he's saving you? What oh, my peasants you? were extremely, extremely fine people. This family, they... But what was the special in this family? Well, they were Poles and they were very kind people. Not too many like this existed. The guy knew me when I was in school. And our families did business together. He came to our ghetto in Sharkoszczyzna. And before uh, the extermination, he said to us, he said, look, I know there's something cooking. Your ghetto will be liquidated. Why don't you come with me? As many as you want. And my mother and my father said, oh, come on, don't be crazy. I mean, people never believed it's going to happen. They never believed. My mother used to say, and she was an intelligent woman, they can't kill off a whole race. It's just impossible, impossible and they refused to go. This isn't the end of Celia Cassow's story. We'll be back next time with the second half of Celia's testimony. In it, she describes escaping from her underground hiding place to join the Soviet partisans. Those Who Were There is a production of the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies, which is housed at Yale University Library's Manuscripts and Archives Department. This podcast is produced by Nahani Rouse, Eric Marcus, and the Archives Director Stephen Naren. Thank you to audio engineer Jeff Town and to Christy Tomachek, Joshua Green, and Inga Dataya for their assistance. Thanks as well to Sam Cassow for historical oversight and to our social media team, Christiana Pena and Nick Porter. Leova Gerbin composed our theme music. Special thanks to the Fortunoff family and other donors to the archive for their financial support. I'm Eleanor Risa. Thank you for listening. <music>